When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 353rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my six guests today are all TV legends. From 1969 through 1974, they starred on the classic ABC sitcom The Brady Bunch, playing children from two families that come together as one, three the sons of a widower, and three the daughters of either a widow or a divorcee. We never learn for sure. And last September, concurrent with the 50th anniversary of the show going on the air, they were reunited by HGTV, which had purchased the Studio City home that had been used as the exterior of the Brady home and enlisted them to help turn its interior into a perfect replica of the sets which had only previously existed on stage five of the Paramount Pictures lot. An effort which resulted in a charming four-part special called A Very Brady Renovation which rolled out over four weeks last September, was watched by more than 28 million people, and wound up with an Emmy nomination for Best Unstructured Reality Program. I'm talking, of course, about Barry Williams, who played Greg, Maureen McCormick, who played Marsha, Christopher Knight, who played Peter, Eve Plum, who played Jan, Mike Lookinland, who played Bobby, and Susan Olsen, who played Cindy, the youngest one in Curls. The Brady Bunch, it should be noted, was created by Sherwood Schwartz, who had previously made his name by creating Gilligan's Island. And the show became instantly recognizable by its opening credit sequence and theme song, as well as the moralistic happy endings of each of its episodes. It never cracked the Nielsen Top 30 during its initial run, many people are surprised to learn. But, as the New York Times later put it, it became a, quote, touchstone for a generation of adolescents in the early 1970s and a cult hit since, close quote, exponentially growing its following and becoming beloved through reruns. Indeed, it has never been off the air for a day since it went into syndication in 1975, and it is the only series ever to appear on all three major broadcast networks and in both theatrical and film incarnations. Plus, it paved the way for a host of other shows which offered their own depictions of blended families, like Full House, Modern Family, Two and a Half Men, and This Is Us. Today, all of the Brady Bunch's adult stars are gone. Robert Reed, who played the patriarch, Mike. Florence Henderson, who played the matriarch, Carol. And Anne B. Davis, who played the housekeeper, Alice. But, thankfully, all of the show's former child stars are still with us, and currently ranging in age between 59 and 65. 
And as the AV Club stated in its review of a very Brady renovation, quote, if the Brady Bunch legacy concludes with a very Brady renovation, it's the right note to end on. The cast banded together to memorialize the place where they spent so much of their childhood and where we spent so much of ours as well, close quote. Over the course of our conversation, the sextet and I discussed the process by which they were chosen from more than 1,200 child actors for their parts on the show, what their memories are of the years they spent working with each other and with the adults on the show, including Reed, about whose behavior there have been widely conflicting reports, how they felt and their careers were impacted after the show was canceled in 1974, and why, contrary to everyone's assumptions, they have not collected royalties for the many years of subsequent re-airings, what convinced them to reunite for a very Brady renovation, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold, like their mother, the youngest one in curls. It's the story of a man named Brady who was busy with three boys of his own. They were four men living all together, yet they were. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really a privilege to have all of you guys here. And uh, I have to say, just for our listeners who are not going to be seeing what I'm seeing, I am looking at a Zoom link which is set up, they they should be paying royalties to, to you guys for the format because it looks like the opening sequence of the Brady Bunch and I'm seeing all of you guys and uh, it's very surreal, but I, I, uh, Only I, it means I'm a lot in, to have I'm in Marsha's spot, so it's, so it's not That's you. Right. I'm, I'm in mom's spot. There's no way to move them around, is there? We were the original Zoom, we were the original yeah. Zoom meeting. We were exactly. prophetic. We, we you know, anticipated all of this. <laughs> well, um, I I want to just tell you it's been so fun watching Very Brady Renovation and just seeing you all reflect on what I know was a heady time in your lives. And so I hope that what we can do on this episode is work our way up to that and just kind of go back as we do on each episode and talk about sort of the big moments leading up to that. And so uh, I'll I'll sort of try to steer questions at individuals, but if somebody has something they want to say, please, you know, don't hesitate to jump in. But I thought it, it would be cool to begin if we could just talking about where uh, each of you, where you were born and, and how you got into acting in the first place prior to Brady Bunch. And, and Barry, I was very interested in my prep to 
maybe we could start with you. I was interested to learn you grew up next door to Peter Graves. Yes, I went to school, well, actually, uh, uh, nursery school with his daughter. <laughs> and that's how I was introduced to him, but from watching the show that was current at that time, which was called Fury. And so I loved that show, and uh, he was inspirational to me, and that's really what kind of led me toward wanting to have a life on television. And you, I know, had several series before The Brady Bunch, as did you, Maureen, I think. And for you, it started with beauty pageants at a very young young age. Is that right? Pageants just one, please. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but, so that was, you know. So what happened was um, I grew up in a house where my dad actually should have been the actor. He was doing high school plays and he was a big ham and loved uh, entertaining people. And so I grew up with him and we would sing songs and get up on tables and dance. And we knew all the musicals and we loved, I love Lucy and we loved television. And um, so the next door neighbors knew that I loved singing and dancing and I was putting on puppet shows for the for the neighborhood, and they said to my parents, "Oh, why don't you enter her in a contest called Baby Miss San Fernando Valley?" I was in the grew up in the Valley Woodland Hills, and my parents were like, "You know, what do you think, Marina?" I was like, "Oh, you know, yeah, that would be fun." So um, I entered it. I sang "Getting to Know You" from The King and I, and I recited something from Little Women, and I had to appear in a bathing suit, which I hated. <laughs> when I was walking down that little ramp. So that was my one and only contest. I won it. And the next day an agent called. Um, they. It's so funny because back then everyone was listed in the yellow pages. You know, it was just knowledge. You know, you look up a name and you could find their phone number because we were listed. And an agent called and my parents talked to them and they asked me about it and we thought, oh yeah, you know, let's, let's just try this. My father was a school teacher. We knew nobody in the industry at all. And, um, one thing led to another. And I know we, uh, I think people might've seen you on Bewitched, for instance, or other shows before Brady Bunch. Um, Christopher, for you, I believe your was your father also an actor? Yeah, I, I was born in Manhattan, in New York. My dad was, well, we were living in Manhattan at that time in, in a one-bedroom apartment uh, that was perfect for my mom and dad, but not, not the children they began to have. And my dad, my dad was uh, uh, working on Broadway and off-Broadway and, and Summerstock. And um, he came to acting because he went to school at Catholic U uh, to be an architect, interestingly. And uh, when uh, the first season was rolling, the architectural students in their first semester uh, had to build the sets, design and build the sets for the theater arts department. And that was his introduction to theater. And he saw all the attention was given to the, the players on stage. And then he decided that's what he wanted to do and ultimately changed his major and then would uh, pursue this acting career, which also included small theater, which meant that he also built his sets himself. But ultimately, yes. Yeah, so that's and and my dad is the first generation, uh, so I'm second uh, immigrant, uh, old school, Middle European. Uh, the sentiment behind me becoming an actor was uh, parallel to what all Middle Europeans did when they got here. They put everybody in the family to work, 
And it was, you know, at seven, there's not really a reason for an agent to say no if you could have access to them. And my dad being in the industry, you know, um, was able to isolate or identify who, you know, the children's agents were of renown and, and, uh, and, and go meet with them and sign his kids up with an agency and, and literally throw that shit against the wall and see what <laughs> sticks. And yeah. it's stuck. It's stuck. Yeah. It's stuck in my case. My brother is a year older, 13 months apart. 14 months apart and we went on every interview together because we were close enough in age and anything that I was called for or he was called for we either would be right for he never worked never worked and I think he stopped going on interviews after about the third year mm-hmm. and I and I did I got the first interview and the third interview and then it just kept working like that and uh, much to my mom's surprise because she always thought that he would be the one that was working we had a little first child kind of issue in the family and so he was the one who was supposed to, he was outgoing and I was introverted. She couldn't get a word out of me. And um, she was rather surprised that I was working, but I would work for that first year without saying a word. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, one, yeah. no one would trust giving me a line. And uh, soon I'd be cast as this character. And then they would also, all of them would see why you don't give Chris a line. <laughs> <laughs> it took me well, a while to learn how to speak. <laughs> now, Eve, I guess it, your situation, I think, maybe was also a matter of just sort of fate. Your neighbor, when you were six, is that right, was a, a talent agent? Yes, yeah. And I got to say, I love hearing everybody's stories. I didn't know a lot of that about Maureen and, and Chris and, and Barry. Uh, you know, we've known each other our whole lives, but yet I'm mm-hmm. finding out really interesting things. And of course, family stories are always the most interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, it was almost like going into the a small town's business. If we, you know, lived in a coal mining town, I'd be working in the coal mines. I was, I was, uh, you know, born across from Disney Studios, and a children's talent agent moved in next door to us when I was six. My parents were both performers. My dad was a musician. My mother had been ballet dancer. And I got the first audition I went on at six, and I kept working. Um, I, I think Maureen did, too. We did a lot of Mattel commercials, you know. We were the yeah. the the... the the currency of the day, a small blonde girl who can recite lines. <laughs> and then I, I just kept getting parts on TV shows. I, I worked on, on, um, oh gosh, Family Affair and, and all of the Westerns, Big Valley and Lancer and Virginian, but they were endlessly and relentlessly, uh, Peril, little girl in peril stories. I lost my <laughs> my I lost my puppy on Christmas Eve on Lassie. I fell down a well on Big Valley. Got run over by a horse on the Virginian. I died of leukemia on Family Affair. So uh, when I auditioned for the Brady Bunch, it was like, well, you know, I don't have to cry on cue as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a what a sadistic industry. <laughs> right, and and then you know what? I was been fortunate enough to make that transition past cute little blonde girl into, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work most every year of my life since then in some form, either theater or movies or TV. And uh, it's, I've been very fortunate and I still love it. Absolutely. Well, I'll definitely, I'm going to come back to some of your guys, other, you know, really standout work apart from Brady. But first I want to go to Mike, I guess you grew up quite uh, initially quite a ways away from this whole industry. What led you guys out to LA in the first place, your family? 
Well, first of all, I'm trying to think of what I can make up some crazy story that Eve's never heard before. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, I, if I just, you know what? If I just tell the real story, that's that's plenty strange. That's usually the weirdest. Um, that's how that's how life is. Um, at, th- at this point, Mike, you just make it up anyway because we don't really remember. Uh, my family, my family lived in L.A. Although I was born in Utah. Um, at the age of four or five days, they, they threw everything back in the Volkswagen and drove back to L.A. I was born in Utah because my grandfather on my mother's side was the administrator of the rural hospital that I was born in. Wow. So the point being, it was free, except for the doctor. <laughs> um, I, 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 it didn't cost them anything because it was grandpa's hospital. So you, you're telling us when your mom went into labor, they drove to Utah? No, they, it was it was it was Christmas vacation. It was Christmas time, so they went to uh, they went to Grandma and Grandpa's house in Spring City, Utah, and waited around for uh, uh, you know for me to be born. When I was taking too long, supposedly they they began to induce labor, and all she had to do was see the needle. And she went into, and my mom went into labor. <laughs> um, you know, that's family, family lore. But so I was raised in L.A. And um, my, the genesis of my, of my joining uh, the film business came from the family photo on my dad's desk. He had a very interesting job uh, in the L.A. school district. He was the distributor of the films, do you do you recall oh, yeah. that every you know in my school it was Thursday every Thursday they'd wheel in the sixteen millimeter projector and show a Jiminy Cricket or uh, um, you know some some Disney or how you were tomato makes it to you were tomato. My my dad's job was distributing those films um, to the thousands of schools that are in the L.A. school district. Netflix. And at some point, so he was he was on the fringes of the film business, just like most people are in L.A. And apparently someone with, uh, you know, agent agency connections saw the family photo on the desk. And she said, hey, red hair and freckles is gold. <laughs> and and, um, and my brother and sister were both in the photo and they they went on interviews as well. Um, my brother was actually a good actor and did lots of lots of um, you know pretty high end roles, uh, but he never you know nothing ever as iconic as as the one we all ended up in. But um, the Brady Bunch came very early in my in my career. Uh, it was actually the third acting job I ever had. The first one you never saw my face. It was a paper <laughs> towel commercial. And the second one, I was wrestling in the park with with uh, a dozen other boys, and getting hurt because it was a band aid commercial. And the Brady Bunch, the Brady Bunch was the third job. But as any of these guys will tell you, we kept going on interviews during the Brady Bunch. Um, you know, just because a job's a job, and that was one, that was one job, and and you try to get more jobs. And one thing, one thing that. Um, that became sort of my specialty was my hands. <laughs> Hold them up right now, Mike. Hold them up. Yeah, he made it a real specialty. <laughs> anytime it was a toy commercial or anytime there, you know, there's there's always an insert of you picking up a potato chip or, or playing with a toy or, you know, brushing your teeth or whatever. 
any time the um, agency would say, hold out your hands, you know, they get 10 kids in a row, hold out your hands. I would be chosen 100% of the time, <laughs> like me, me and the girl or me and the, me and the black kid. But I was, I was chosen 100% of my time of the time because of my hands. So I got lots of toy commercials and dozens and dozens of commercials based on my hands, which is Mike, I have a question about that. Do, when, you, when you do a hand shot, do you get residuals? And I was going to ask the same thing. No, you don't. You don't get residuals if your face is not shown. Right. Is that right? Wow. Well, because I know my first commercial as well wasn't, uh, I was just sliding into home base as a baseball player. <laughs> you never could recognize who it was. It wasn't a face. And I know that. I don't know if there was another commercial I did that was like that, but that, that was my introduction. That was fine with me, but I, I, I seem to recall, if I can trust myself, that that paid at a, different, at a different rate with less residuals, if there were any at all. So Christopher and Mike must have uh, cornered that side of the business in those, in those years. Uh, Susan, how about you? Well, it all started, um, actually, my, my oldest brother was 24 when I was born. Uh, Mom had four kids, but she took a long time doing so. And um, when my oldest brother was five years old, he was standing on a street corner with my mom, and he he looked like a a cherub had come to life. Beautiful little boy. And um, an agent drove up, parked the car, got out of the car, and and gave my mom her her business card and said, "Take is this little boy in the movies? And she said, no. And she said, take him to Fox Studios tomorrow at 4 o'clock. They're looking for a child like him, and um, I'm an agent, yada, yada. Mom goes home. Dad has a fit. Dad says, no, you're not going to take this son of ours on an audition. And she says, oh, come on. You know, I just want to see the inside of the studio. So she takes him, long story short, he comes out with the script in his hand. And he was in a movie with Donna Michi and Francis D. called Happy Land. And then, you know, he continued to work. And then my next brother was born and he was only 14 months old. And he was on the set of one of the movies the older brother was on. And and, um, because mom didn't have a babysitter or wanted to show the baby off or something. But the director comes in and says, that baby has a mouth like Gene Tierney. I need that baby to play Gene Tierney's son. So he started working. And then my, so all four of us kids in our own ways were discovered. And my grandmother said it was because of her blessing on the family that all of the children would, would be famous or be in TV and movies. And, um, and my father <laughs> always considered it the curse and because he never liked any of us doing any of it. And I started when I was 14 months old, and then my sister wanted to quit. She was five years older than me. And so my mom was sick of it by then. She took me out, and um, I was about, I was three. And everything was normal until I got to kindergarten. And um, I was in kindergarten, and a talent scout came to the kindergarten and picked me to sing a song on the Pat Boone show. And so the school called my mom and thinking she'd be thrilled. She's like, oh, no, I just can't get away from this. And I remember her asking me, OK, well, you know, I never gave you a chance. All the other the other kids had decided to get out. You know, they'd gotten tired of it and they didn't want to work anymore. And she said, you never got your chance to say, you know, whether you wanted to do, to do it. Do you want to do this? And I'm like, oh, yes, yes, mommy, please give me an agent. I want to work. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I started working at five, and then by the time I was seven, I decided that I wanted a regular job, and I really, really wanted to be on a series. And God Amazing. blessed me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you had a number of uh, a number of them even before Brady Bunch, including yes, I, uh, Gunsmoke, I believe. <laughs> well, yeah. There, there was there was a choice of three, and it, this is my magical my grandmother who specialized in magical thinking. Um, she said, well, Susan, you just prayed too hard. I had three opportunities, Nanny and the Professor, Brady Bunch, or Gunsmoke. And I knew I didn't want Nanny because there were only two other boys to play with. But Gunsmoke and Brady Bunch, my, my Graham said, you know, it wouldn't hurt for you to have a say-so in what you would like the most, but whatever's best will happen. And um, I was thinking, guy, horses or five other kids? Hmm... It was really hard. I thought, well, you know, I might enjoy being on a set with five other kids more than horses. So you guys won. I'm surprised and, um, to hear that because you were really, you were a real horse girl. I know. Yeah. I can't believe that I We're, we're honored I made by that your choice. sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did regret it many times. No. Oh, I'm sure you did. <laughs> Susan was the first cast member cast for the Brady Bunch. To my oh, knowledge, in other words, they sure would build the Brady Bunch around Susan Olson. Well, that's what I that's what I read, and I wanted to. It's it's so interesting that twice in a week the name Sherwood Schwartz has come up on this podcast. Obviously, it was going to come up with you guys, but we also had a gentleman, Newt Minow, who ran the FCC just during the Kennedy administration a few years before uh, Brady Bunch, who was on. He was famous for that speech to the broadcasters warning them to kind of clean up their act. It was known as the Vast Wasteland speech. And as a result, he antagonized a lot of broadcasters and creators on TV, including Sherwood Schwartz, who then named the ship that sunk on Gilligan's Island the SS Minnow after Newt Minnow. So we, that, that, we, that came up when we were talking about him. But you guys, uh, I think, knew him a lot. I know knew him a lot better than Newt Minnow ever did. And so having had his success starting already with Gilligan's Island now, I guess, uh, as everybody knows, reads this article at LA Times about blended families. That could be a cool show. It gets put off for a while. Um, there's movie that gets made that's similar, but it was original. You know, every, that, that part we know. But I want to ask you guys if you can share just what your own experience was in terms of, you know, you hear that there's this opportunity. You all you all were auditioning for other things, as you've talked about. When this came through as a as an audition opportunity, was there anything special about it, or was it just in your mind, or was it just another audition? And Susan, I guess if we can start with you, because I think you, as as was noted, I think were the first cast out of 1,200 people who it sounds like met for met for this. 464 interviewed by Sherwood. Um, but but you were you were the first aboard. So what was that meeting like? Well, having already decided that I wanted to be in a series or a theory, um, <laughs> we were in Las Vegas and got a phone call from the agent, and she said, "There's an audition. Um, this is for a series. It would be a regular role, and it's the producer of Gilligan's Island." Well, you know. Get me out of Vegas. Um, <laughs> so it was three days after my seventh birthday, and um, I walked in, and I there were other men in the room, and I believe that they were John Rich and Jack Arnold, um, who were two of the directors who directed our 
John Rich directed the first six episodes. Anyway, uh, these three men sang happy birthday to me, and um, I thought that was really, really nice of them. And according to Sherwood, I was lisping all over the place, covering people in spit, and um, <laughs> talking about how I'd been on gun smoke, and um, I was bitten by a rattlesnake. And uh, that, that was the storyline. But don't worry, it was a fake snake. And I was explaining to them how special effects worked because even back then I was really kind of into special effects. So I guess, you know, I, I charmed them. And Sherwood did tell my agent that I, I had the job, but there were other decisions that had to be made because there was still the possibility of having brunette daughters and blonde sons, and it depended on who they cast as the parents. So we all met up. In fact, there, there was a different age range, too. I know, I remember Maureen and I being in the Lucy rehearsal hall at Paramount doing these lineups, like just screen tests, and they had a girl that was older than Maureen to play Marsha, and Maureen would have been Jan, and then they, they lined us up with Eve, and... Um, Anyway, like I already knew you, Maureen, because I'd seen you on a couple of auditions. And um, when we finally got the job, it's like, oh, it's you. <laughs> we get to be sisters now. Well, so that's I, I wonder if if whoever would like to take this one can can clarify. So as I understand it, as as Susan's just said, you know, referenced, they're going to cast the kids first. Sherwood's going to cast the kids first, but going to cast two sets, assuming so that so that when they decide on the parents you know it's if the father's blonde then the then the sons are going to be blonde if the mother's brunette the daughters are going to be brunette so when you were how did that work for you guys they just say hey you know hold your hold your calendar because we'll let you know when we decide on the parents or or how did that actually affect you guys does anybody remember being put on hold or were you told that you had the role i was told we had the role so I don't think mm -hmm. that any of us knew about, I don't know, I know I didn't know about a second cast. No, I didn't uh, either. That wouldn't have been something that, that we needed to know about or right. they needed to worry just about. Just don't call they, us, we'll call you. Yeah, they knew. <laughs> I'm trying to recall when we were doing the pilot and even the first few episodes, I knew that there had been two sets of kids cast. I, I, I knew that. And I thought it was it was the alternate cast they came on and they became our stand-ins. Is this ringing a bell? And then people would no. say first team, second team, and then no. they realized they were psychologically damaging these children because we were <laughs> we were all in school sort of together, and then they would say first team, and then we'd go out and be stars, and they'd say second team, and they'd go out there and stand out and, on, a, on a mark while they set the lights. Do you remember children no. being our stand-ins during the pilot? They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't. I remember the name of mine. There were Patty kids. Cahoon. Oh, there you go. Patty oh. Cahoon, who went on to do Apple's Way, and 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 Maureen, they because they cast our stand-ins to look like us. So, like the brunette cast wouldn't have been a part of that, and um, and they were just missing everybody. And Maureen said, "Wait a minute, what about this girl?" And pointed to Patty Cahoon, who looked just like me. I mean, we were like twins, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, okay. How did we overlook you?" And she became my stand-in, but then. Later on, when we went into actual production, Mike and I both had um, little people as our stand-ins. Really? Yeah, you don't wow. have to give... It's the whole school thing, you know right. what I mean? That becomes... Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Preferably, you're always going to have an adult. And I just, I just like to point out what this dynamic that just happened. But Susan is our go-to encyclopedia for what really (laughs) happened. We all have our memories, and then we either confirm it or, or she denies it. From so we, she's always the go-to. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be true. She's just so confident with her knowledge. We've learned that if you, if you're adamant about your recollection, you write the history. (laughs) <laughs> Whether it's true or not. Yeah. Well, uh, Mike, Pro- I guess. Prove we, me we wrong. Have... Just once. <laughs> well, that's just it. We can't. We can't. You're the only one that remembers. So you're the one that gets to, to be right. <laughs> Mike, I, I want to come back to you for a second, though, because I think you sort of uh, I, I want to know how you overcame what everybody else was up against, which is your hair color. I mean, you the the other folks would have been out of luck if they went with a blonde uh, father and a brunette mother. You were a, what would you, what'd you say, like sandy-haired, red-haired kind of kid? Strawberry blonde. Yeah, reddish, yeah. reddish, blondish. First of all, I got I got nice gray hair. My, my wife says, I like your gray hair. Um, <laughs> first of all, I was cast briefly before the Brady Bunch um, to be the, the kid on the courtship of Eddie's father, to be Eddie in the courtship of Eddie's father. Eve might not know about that one. Did you know about that, Eve? I did not. I did not I know about that one. I was cast um, to be Ken Berry's son in The wow. Courtship of Eddie's Father and Tony Kelman, who was our Wait, agent. Wait, not Ken Berry. No, oh, Ken Berry. No, no. Did I say Ken Berry? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, Ken, who was, Ken who was it? Uh, Bill Bixby. To- Bill Bixby. Okay. <laughs> sorry. 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 Um, that's why. See, Susan. That's why we have Susan. Um, uh, uh, and Tony Kelman, our agent, said, I don't like those people. Um, you're not taking that job. And I remember my parents saying, what are you talking about? Mike just got cast um, to, you know, to do a new series. She said, no, I don't like those people. Literally uh, just a few weeks later, I I recall it being maybe three weeks later, I had the job on the Brady Bunch. I was the, Bobby was the last character cast. And I think they were running out of time and they said, "Uh, just get that looking land kid. We'll dye his hair. And um, and they said, and they said, uh, they said to me, we like you better than than you know our second choice, but we have to dye your hair. And we said, okay, you know that's not a big deal. It became a big deal for me personally at the age of eight, when <laughs> when I went to work one day with red hair and came back home that same day with black hair, and. <laughs> People, people, you know, my peers and our neighbors were were wondering what is wrong with these people, <laughs> and um, it so it became a, a psychologically difficult for me. I mean, nowadays think about it: you would have purple skin or or green hair in a heartbeat, and, and it wouldn't matter. Yeah, right. we've come a long way. In 1968, yeah. it it just seemed like odd for a for an eight year old to uh, to be doing that for for a role. Plus. No one had seen the Brady Bunch because we hadn't filmed the pilot even yet, right? right? So people didn't know what was going on, and it was it was a strange event in my life that became kind of bigger than it needed to be. But yeah, they dyed my hair jet black. I remember looking at the little bottle of Miss Clarell sitting on the on the makeup table, and it said Miss Clarell number sixty three jet black. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a, so it's I was like the, the I was the original like metal. Metal rocker. I remember one of the shows 
you could see it like lightening up and then all of a sudden like really dark again. Like I can see that, you know, I can see it the toes. So, uh, well, <laughs> well uh, Eve, I wanted to ask, you, if you, uh, one of the things I'd read Sherwood said was, quote, I wanted their series personas to be reflective of their own real personalities, close quote. Was that starting with you? Uh, you know, I want to, and then we'll go if anyone else wants to weigh in on this, but was that your scent? Did you feel that the character that you were asked to play or that was written for you to play subsequently was fairly similar to you? I don't remember uh, really being concerned about anything other than really learning my lines and saying them correctly and saying them how people wanted me to say them. I don't think there was any ever, from from my point of view, any idea of, well, I don't think the Jan would say that um, <laughs> kind of a thing. I think it was pretty much show up, you know, hit your mark, say your line and, and do it. And that was sort of the way I'd already been trained with all the other stuff that I had done. And I mean, we weren't being asked to do things that were so extreme, um, you know, uh, so I can't, I don't know. I don't think I had that much self-awareness. Let, might I jump in and just just suggest that the way that sure, we, we get to we get to parse this um, and look back at history and try to make some sense out of uh, the arcs that were built. Mm -hmm. But they, I don't I don't think at the time that they were conscious. Um, but we can see that they were developing our characters from a certain spot, which was at, at our initiation. And if you can see how the hair was built in. There was clearly an idea of who the youngest was. Um, there is a sharp, cl classic idea of what the oldest are. And I got to tell you, there is no one who has any idea of what the middle is. Because there's no agreement <laughs> on, on the middle. Is it the Confused. invisible child? Or it, <laughs> it is the child with all the liberty? But expectations are wide, uh, wide open for a middle child. And these arcs that they built in are partly because they see us doing it. Um, so right, there's no writer room. There is, we had no um, uh, writing staff. I mean, they mm -hmm. literally took scripts that were written for the show by write, freelance writers mm -hmm. and, and read through them and picked the best ones and then would work through with the couple writers there were on the show, the, the uh, what was Tam Spiva's title, uh, a, a script supervisor, to put it in shape to shoot. And by that point, somebody had watched the show, at least, saw some character, they had some idea, maybe from their past, about that child. And then when it was put in our mouths, it became us. And I think in Eve's case, it's just the idea, somebody had an idea that it must be trouble growing up with an older sister who gets all this attention. And that's the genesis of that. And a little that. sister that gets all this attention. I'd like to, uh, but right. I'd like to add to this, uh, mm. what we're talking about. What was clear is that Sherwood didn't want to create a show about stereotypes. And yes. I think that was a really important decision and, and worked really well to the advantage of both the show and for us. Uh, because... He, Almost all television, they would have a certain type of kid or, uh, uh, you know, it'd be an all good kid, an all bad kid. It would be a, a brainiac, it'd be a, an oaf, an idiot, it'd be an oddball. It'd be someone who really liked, you know, had some peculiar fascination with a hobby of some kind. He didn't do sure. that with... 
with any of us. He he wanted six kids and their experiences and what was growing up and make it universally relatable, and uh, and then and then throw his kind of uh, values on it, his, his morality on it, is the kind of all for one, one for all uh, attitude to it. And I think that really helped to form the. The, the the sense of our of our show. Yeah, and, and he should be given credit for that because he resisted the network wanting to do character descriptions and have those stereotypes. And I just want to quote back something he said late in life, which I, I think is a testament to you guys. Quote, the casting God must have smiled on me since they turned out to be wonderful choices, each and every one. They were talented, bright, and never gave us any real problems during the series, close quote. And I, I guess you also dealt a lot with his... Uh, two of his children, I don't know how many he had, but I know Lloyd, the son, was originally your dialogue coach and then became an executive producer. And then Hope, who we see in a very Brady renovation, was sort of your contemporary, I guess, and and uh, is your contemporary and was on a bunch of episodes. But I guess let me ask you this. Uh, you guys shot the pilot in September 68. It gets ordered to series so that people can have a sense of how much you were working. I mean, can you give a sense of how many months a year, how many days a week, you know, was, was this, uh, and, and hours a day even, was this uh, sort of occupying your time? Was it a, a total year round commitment or were you able to still maintain a semblance of a, of a quote unquote normal life? I think it was about what an eight month commitment because we started, we would go back into production, meaning in front of the cameras, the Monday after school got out. And I believe five out of the six of us went to L.A. public schools. So that ha we all were on the same calendar. Eve, I think, did you go to I LA? went to I went to public school until sixth grade and then went to private school because the public school wouldn't count the, the days. As, they would only count me as absent. They didn't count the fact that I was getting tutored three hours a day on the set. Wow. God, that's the story that's I remember, the, but I could be wrong. No, there's no. There, that's that they have to count it because they do. I mean, that's right. where we got all of our 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 you guys coursework yeah. was from the the teachers. The but school. we all went to, but we went to L.A. public schools, all of us. So that's um, that uh, Francis Whitfield, who you guys mentioned, was she was on that was our social. And, she's our social worker, and, <laughs> and, and but then then taught yeah. when school was back in session. So we then all started having three hours of school every day that we worked at the same on the same date that our class was back in session in September. And then we'd work on through uh, mid-February. We'd have a couple weeks off around Christmas mm -hmm. or a month off around Christmas, something like that. It like was that basically six to eight months, 10 to 12 hours a day, five days a week. And you well, eight hours a day. That's the shooting minus. schedule. That's not the promotional schedule. Those weren't the outside activities. Those wasn't the recording. That wasn't the the uh, concert tours. That wasn't any of the shows that we were doing outside of that to promote it. So there, it was a pretty full full schedule. We I say sometimes that we spent more time together as a Brady family, uh, as with our friends, than we did with our own families during many parts of the year. You know, like. On the weekends, a lot of times we would all get together with our families, which was really, really nice. I always loved when my family was hanging out with your families and um, and and we were hanging out with Sherwood's family and, and Florence's uh, family. Florence's family. Florence's so son and I always had birthday parties together. <laughs> yeah, so that that was really beautiful. I remember my family wanting to take a summer vacation, but there were no summer vacations for those five years. 
except for one year, and I think it was in 72 because I remember watching the Summer Olympics at Mike's house because it was Mike's family that took me in so my family could go to Yosemite or wherever they went. Hey. So just, I think, to offer a sense, the, the you did the pilots September 68. It goes on, I guess it's ordered to series and goes on the air season one, September 69. How soon after that first episode aired on September 26, 69, how soon did you realize, oh, wait a minute, my life is, I've been on TV and, and other things before, but my life is not going to be the same after this, um, that, you know, you're suddenly famous and, and regarded differently by regular kids and all of that. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to tackle that first. Oh, I Susan, one. I see. Okay. Yeah, I got mobbed um, by fans. Um, my, my mother, it's the only fault, the only thing I'm really going to fault her with is that somebody told her that keeping my hair in the pigtails and me looking like Cindy was made me a walking advertisement for the show. And, um, you know, she should have said, well, if you wanted to advertise the show, you should pay her. But <laughs> instead, she just went along with it. And so I went everywhere looking like Cindy freaking Brady. And um, I was at a, a high school play that my uncle had directed in Palo Alto. And uh, during the intermission, one person recognized me, another person recognized and. Next thing you know, I'm mobbed. I'm just surrounded by all these people, and I, you know, I can't breathe. And I'm wondering who's going to save me. And it was a really strange experience for um, an eight-year-old child. And, and like a, a grown-up would come along, and I'd think, "Oh, they're going to get me out of here." And they go, "Here, just one more," and have me sign another autograph. And finally, security came and got me out. And um, I was like. Well, this sucks. <laughs> um, now I can't, as much as I wanted to be like a beetle, I didn't want to have people chasing me and, and you know, that fame thing. Um, but it very strangely, uh, it, it turned into a good lesson because getting on the plane to go home, my absolute idol at the time was Donna Douglas, who played Ellie Mae Clampett. And she was on the plane. And I'm like, oh, you know, she's here. And mom said, okay, now understand, that's what people felt when they saw you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, well, I'm not going to ask her for her autograph because I don't want to right. bug her. <laughs> right. Now, for those of you who were a little bit older, was it different? Was it cool in a different way? I mean, it must be nice to suddenly have Barry, I would imagine, young girls your age, you know, probably excited to see you or Maureen, you know, young guys, was that, I guess you were still, still when it went on the air, you were maybe even too young for that to be a, a, a perk. I spent five years just trying to get Maureen's attention. <laughs> Never really did. Um, does, does, do we all recall the, the, uh, San, the mall in San Jose? We showed up. That, we was, make it, that was, that was already three years or four years in, wasn't it? Two or, two or, two or three. And that was like 74, I well, believe. Well, that, I, I remember thinking, okay, life is different now. They'd expected maybe 15,000, 20,000 people. Uh, over 100,000 people showed up to this mall, wow. and they had to call in extra security, and, and the, uh, the phone system went down, and there were all kinds of security issues about it. And I thought, oh, I get it. Uh, people really like this show. Mm -hmm. We did the album in seven, the Christmas album in 71 or 72, right? So, and uh, 71. That was Christmas. Uh, it came out in Christmas of 72. I think it was then when we did the white front presentation. 
that was when we started recognizing now these are crowds coming to see us that we didn't know from adam I know mm -hmm. in my case, by the time we shot the pilot, that was fifth grade, uh, fifth grade, but it wasn't on the air until the next summer. So then I was uh, in sixth grade, but working through the first 20 weeks of that, it was upon going back to school uh, in sixth grade, the second half of the year, when now people had watched um, the first season of the Brady Bunch and are recognizing me. But the majority of those kids at that elementary school knew me previously so that that dulled it but then it was the next year that for me was well i look forward to like like taking an acid bath yeah. i think there yeah. was a whole idea of being a scrub anyway when you go from sixth grade to seventh grade in a junior high school a whole new school where only you know you're one feeder school into that you're gonna know 10 percent of the kids and everybody else then is not going to know you and so now their first introduction to you is not you but through a character and that was a totally different experience mm -hmm. frightening and, and not and not the nice i mean people that's the biggest misconception people have is that say to me well you must have been the most popular kid in school it's like no i was teased unmercifully for every stupid thing that cindy did in that episode that week wow well, so as you look back at the years that you were doing the show for all those, you know, hours a week that, that Barry mentioned, do you recall it being primarily fun or do you recall it feeling like work? That was fun. <laughs> I thought it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It, it was, was a fun. lot of fun. But we were, at least in my case, uh, it was made very clear to to us that this was a job and there and you were um responsible you needed to be ready you you weren't allowed to be late we took no sick days absolutely we absolutely there was mm -hmm. um it was made very clear to us that there was a lot of weight on our shoulders and a lot depended uh, on us being prepared and professional and and our parents um you know were part of that team sure. my my mother actually had a deal with the local gas station so that if we were running a couple minutes late, she could pop in, fill up and drive away. And they would just, we had, so I'm, I swear to you, we had a tab at the, at the gas station. You guys lived far away. Yeah, I was the only one that lived down in the South Bay. Um, everybody else lived in the valley wow. or thereabouts. Yeah, but it didn't make it any closer for us. It was the same day. Yeah. I mean. Pretty hard. And I think, I, I think. I thank God that Maureen, that we had to pick you up and take you in because my parents had never been and never from that date on anywhere on time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, so so only because we picked you up at a designated time did we end up getting there. I'm sure I would have been fired. So it was so cool because throughout the series, my mother was legally blind, very, very bad eyesight. And my father was teaching school every day. So... He couldn't, you know, he had to go there to Burbank, which was where he was working. But it was so great because um, I lived in Woodland Hills. Chris did. And Susan, you were in Tarzana. So we were all close to each other. And I got I was so lucky to be able to carpool with both. Mm -hmm. of you. And it was kind of nice, too, for the moms because, you know, they had another adult to talk to. And I just really treasured those memories of 
it was it was both fun and work, but I mm-hmm. always appreciated where we got to go to work. It was mm-hmm. in the golden era of television, and mm-hmm. Paramount Studios was happening and so the mm-hmm. shows that were that were being filmed during and around the time that we were there and sort of our neighbors if you will and the places where we could go visit and see were Star Trek and Mission Impossible and Mannix Bonanza was still filming we'd run into John Wayne uh, the uh, uh, Mod Squad was there and Gomer Pyle and that girl Happy Days was kicking off right around the end of our show the odd odd couple the odd couple we shared we shared the set with so these were our you know I mean we were social with a lot of these people and even when it said you know like uh, private set you know or closed set we'd go on and they'd you know they'd welcome us we could (laughs) hang out it was it was fantastic Nice. Well, I think another interesting thing that you guys, I I wonder how, what your experience with this was, was being with adults who, you know, who were going to spend, as you say, as much time with you as your own families in some cases. I mean, we, we all kind of have a sense of, of Florence Henderson because she was so present for years, even after Brady Bunch in, in just different ways. I think people are, are, are less, aware of 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 Robert Reed and I wonder you know there's a million different perspectives that have been shared where I, I I'll just tee it up a little bit where on the one hand we hear you know he was difficult for Sherwood and from Sherwood's perspective and you know there's stories that maybe he was sometimes drinking too much or, or a bit of a tortured guy on the other hand I know a lot of you have spoken about how highly you thought of him. And I think he took you on a trip at one point to England and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, you know, he, we lost him a lot earlier than, than Florence. And, and I think all people really know about that is that they were surprised to learn that, uh, he had been gay and living in the closet and, and all that. What was your read on him just to kind of clarify was he a good guy? Was he a difficult guy? You know, maybe Maureen, you look like you have something to say. Yes, I do. Um, you know, first of all, everyone has their own opinion and different, you know, reactions to people. Um, I adored Bob. First of all, I grew up on the Defenders. And when I found out he was, you know, playing uh, the father, I was just in awe of him and, and his work before as a, as a dramatic actor. Um, I always found him amazing and wonderful. And I feel that he made our show much better because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of situations where, you know, it would be too crazy and too unbelievable and like, come on, you know, nobody's going to buy this. And, you know, he, he fought to make everything real. He wanted it to be believable. So I'm thrilled that, that he did that for our show. I think he made it a lot better. He was an amazing actor. He was an incredible human being. You know, we were friends with his parents, with his mom, with his dad, um, with his friends. His daughter. Um, I always thought I would marry him one day because I... <laughs> <laughs> your okay. episode, I was in love with that guy. I really was. But... Um, you know, I'm, I just, I loved Bob. He was he, really he, great. He was a father. 
I mean, yeah. there was a there was a very good father in him. In general, in general, I think what was very interesting about that the set, like you say, growing up around adults. I would rather be hanging out with my mom and listening in and listening to the mothers talk and talk about this. And that's sort of how you learn life, learn about life. You know, you, you just sort of listen and pay attention. But the whole set was all adults, of course. And we were treated with respect. Uh, nobody was was mean to us that I remember. I mean, we had a, a really respectful professional set and we all worked hard and we got it done. And we weren't necessarily the highest rated show. You know, Mod Squad was much sexier and odd couple. And, and we, we weren't necessarily, quote unquote, relevant in those days. Nobody would really cop to... <laughs> actually watching the show um, at those times. Um, so true. But, I mean, at one point they tried to make us do an episode in, what, two and a half days? Yeah. You know, they tried to, like they really tried to take, take money away from us, um, and we, we still got it done. And in that, you know, there weren't, there weren't we were not abused. I mean, yeah, As in my recollection. Yeah. Bob, I mean, retrospect, I guess Bob was an idol. I didn't really know that at the time. Going with what I experienced, Bob was just absolutely wonderful. We were little professionals uh, learning a trade, even if we weren't conscious of it. Um, and he helped teach us that trade uh, and the respect one has for it. Um, I know that personally it was a revelation um, that my opinion or point of view mattered or was valid. Because literally, I think what we're all commenting on is on set, we were equal to the adults. We were validated in that way. But as soon as I got back in the car and went home, I wasn't. I mean, it, I wasn't an equal. <laughs> I was just the kid, you know. And so it was a whole different experience. And Bob, um, in that world and in that environment, was a, a wonderfully warm, compassionate, uh, cerebral thinking person. Now, he might have had some issues that none of us, I, I, I'll speak for myself, I had no knowledge of. Nope. During the course, if he drank, never knew it. Never knew now, it. Would have I been? Would have I been sensitive to it? I probably at some point would definitely have been. Um, so he never got to that point. But now, would it? You know, and are, are are those issues and those interactions that he had with Sherwood real? Uh, perhaps yes, but I didn't experience experience them. He definitely chose to keep them, uh, and those issues that he had with the producers away from us. Mm -hmm. My experience with Bob stems a lot from, you know, the fact that I was one of the youngest. And at that point in your life, you're, you're more under the influence of your parents than if you, than if you, you know, are a little bit older. And our parents, mostly mothers, they were part of the team all the way. And they had to be, they had to be there by law as a guardian, um, parent or guardian. And, um, the influence that they had over me with regard to Bob was what a delightful, beautiful, wonderful man he is. And so that's the impression I, I had, you know, and that's what I, you know, that's what I saw when I looked at him. And when the fights would ensue, it was time to go now, Mike. And I'd be like, I'd be <laughs> like, what's going on? You know, as, as, as I'm, you know, being whisked off to the, to the schoolroom. So, I was never, I was never, that was never something I was ever a witness to. And it was kept from us. Like Chris just said, we, we were not, we, I was not aware of that. 
And I don't, well, and it was cut from us by Bob, too. The disagreements were very real and very, very visceral and very, there was a lot of animosity there. I mean, there, it, it was all his issues were all about art, not something that I think that any of us at that time had. And Sherwood Schwartz, you know, was they had they came from different, they, and, and yeah, F they, Troop. They, they came mm -hmm. from different different places. Yeah, I thought F Troop was pretty good. <laughs> well, I was aware of it. You know, I I could see it happening. I could see when you know it was like okay, you know, you know, Bob would walk off, and I knew that you know there was talking going on and. People were frustrated, but um, I just thought that, you know, by that happening, it would come to a better place, creative. Yeah. yeah. And I work with kids today, and he remains mm -hmm. my mentor for how to, to deal with children. You, you know, wow. if you give kids respect, they tend to give it back. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that he did, and I don't <laughs> know where I heard this, I've heard it a number of times, so it, it must be true because it was repeated, was that Florence and Bob consciously, in a dialogue, recognized that though they were the stars of the show, the show wasn't about their characters or them, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. it was about the kids. And, and um, so and all of his animosity wasn't about not having enough to do. It wasn't about the normal stuff that an egotist might or an egotistical star might um, uh, bring down you know, on his crew and on his producers, it was, it was about bringing more reality, um, or at least the reality as he understood it, uh, to our family. I think Scott, what you're what you're hearing here is, that, uh, and we all agree that is that our show was perfectly cast with all of the right people, uh, uh, people that all had a, a a a tremendous and a genuine chemistry. And it would not have, it would not still be running on the air or become what it has become if any of any piece of that puzzle was missing. So true, Bear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, and I, it sounds like just from my, I tried to research as much as I could before this. And I mean, it sounds like there were a lot of happy memories with the, you guys watching the moon landing together. I see pictures of Ann V. Davis doing needlework with all of you guys. Um, as you mentioned, there may have been little flings. Amongst the, you know, amongst the cast, which is understandable when you have young uh, hormonal kids. Um, so I just wonder then how it felt for you as the show was canceled in 74. Was that su surprising to you? Was it upsetting or relieving to you to be able to now move on with with your lives? If it's not going on too long with one question, I guess, were you would you ever have imagined when the show went off the air, as you say, not having ever been in the top 30 of the Nielsen ratings, all of this, that 50 plus years later, there'd still be this demand for for seeing you guys together and all of that, that I mean, just what was your outlook as the cancellation happened and you now had to face the future? Let's start with Eve, and maybe we can go around. You know, we were all teenagers at that point. I was 15, so, you know, it's, when something was, it was shocking. And I think my parents were bummed because I think I would have gotten a pay raise, which, uh, you know, was sort of a bum. You want, you want to keep the job, and now you're sort of cut, cut loose, but then, you know, now you have the opportunity to have new opportunities. So, of course, there was some relief because, you know, you're a teenager and, well, now I'll do something different instead of this same thing. Um, but it, I was surprised. I think that we, I think it was one of those things where we didn't hear and didn't hear until the very last minute. And so, of course, we were disappointed. Um, but 
I don't know. Um, and of course, nobody ever expected the Spanish Inquisition. Um, nobody expected there to be cable. We were happy to be paid the residuals for 10 runs of each episode, um, after which we have not been paid. So all of the reruns have been at, you know, the the benefit to all the other cable companies. But it's also, of course, benefited our audience, which is great. Our audiences are wonderful, even to this day. And I'm so grateful for them. And in no way would I have imagined that it would still be this popular. And I just have to give a nod to the HGTV show that we did, because... As far as, as that goes, it's been one of the, the best Brady experiences I've ever had and uh, really makes me appreciate everybody. And I'm so glad to have known these people my whole life and so glad to have gotten to work on that specific project. It was so beautifully made. Yes. Mike, you want to go ahead? It was definitely bittersweet. Like I was ready to be done, but these are my family and and I knew, you know, it was it was sort of like the rug being pulled out from under you, but but almost a relief for a, for a adolescent. And here's the thing: within weeks, a matter of just a couple three weeks, I had a, I had the job on the Towering Inferno. I spent that entire summer hanging out with Paul Newman, Faye Dunaway, <laughs> uh, Steve McQueen. And listening to Erwin Allen scream, more fire, more fire. It was heaven for a 14-year-old kid and a, on a mega, mega budget movie. Right. Um, it was, it was, it was, so that softened the blow, let's put it that way. Sure. And, and Barry, I think you were pretty, pretty quickly off to New York and into Pippin, right? I was uh, later in that summer. We had been told we would do a sixth season. The contracts had expired at five. So as Eve pointed out, they would have needed to be re- renegotiated, but we were still, they were still, uh, we were on the schedule till the end. Uh, and then when I got the call from uh, one of the execs at ABC who said that he was sitting there with a bottle of bourbon, blah, 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 uh, and <laughs> disappointed to tell us that we were canceled. I felt like the, 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 the show and our cast was the center of our uni- of my universe. And so it very definitely was a was going to leave a gaping hole in, in you know, in just a progression. And I was excited about the new things or Greg going to college, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a, a surprise and, and, and mostly disappointment for me. Maureen, what was your I, I know that, you know, you've written about the fact that it, it came with casting challenges, as people might imagine. You've talked about Midnight Express and stuff where you're on the one hand not able to necessarily quickly in those years escape being Marsha, but were you also looking, was that something you were itching to do, you know, anyway, I guess, what was your mindset? I mean, I was itching, you know, definitely to, to, you know, go off and, and act and, and play other characters. Um, so, I mean, I had heard inklings that we might, we might not. And of course it was bittersweet, but it was kind of exciting too. It's like, you know, so, okay, what's next? And, um, you know, I w- loved, you know, playing other roles and going off to do other movies and different TV shows and other series and stuff. So I was really excited about that. And I actually, I mean, I felt like th- all these people that, that we would stay friends forever and that I would always see them, you know, we all 
but it was exciting too, to go off and like live life and go back to a school and just, you know, see what was next and to really live life um, away from something that, that, you know, had been a long period of time. And it's been so incredible having the reunions and seeing everyone and where they're at and what they're doing. I love these people. I find them all so fascinating and um, we're all so different and which is really like a family, but I mean, they, they always, um, I feel like are a part of, of me and my family. I mean, we went through so much together and, and it's something that, you know, only we share and, um, oh, I have such love in my heart for, for the show and for Anne and Florence and Bob and the crew and, and Francis Whitfield, who was with us for five years, our teacher, you know, what a beautiful, beautiful experience. Yeah. Now, Susan, when it ended, I think you were, you were still interested in acting to the extent that I think you went to the, the American Academy to start. And then at a certain point, you did not want to continue. Was it, what, what, what was that thought process? Well, for lack of imagination, I just assumed that I would continue acting. Um, and so for that reason, I was kind of praying that the show would get canceled because I didn't want to grow up on the show. And, and I was already at a really awkward age. Um, I wasn't cute anymore. They didn't know what to do with me. And um, you were still, well, you were pretty and, you know, you were take a look at the fifth season. Um, <laughs> <laughs> by the time I got the braces, I, but um, anyway, I thought it would be better for me if the show ended and I could grow up away from the camera and then come back and not be so associated with the character Cindy, which um, proved to be completely impossible. Um, however, and I, like Maureen, I always felt like we would stay together. We would still be family, we'd be in touch in some way. We didn't have to have the show to keep us together. And um, so I was kind of, I mean, I sort of felt guilty because I prayed for it, but I, I was happy when I found out that the show was canceled. Um, and then it wasn't until I was 23 after going to the, in fact, Robert Reed wrote one of the recommendation letters for me to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and offered to let me live in his house, which was wow. located wow. near the school. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I was out of that school, I was in some great workshops with, with people that became, you know, Oscar winners. And, um, and I got my first job. It was on divorce court. And I realized, <laughs> I don't like acting. I really don't like this. This isn't what I want to do at all. And now I have to do this gig. So I did it, but I called my teacher and uh, my agent. I said, you know, this isn't what I want. And then I went into, um, I, I started working as a graphic artist. Now I teach acting. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. And and Christopher, I know that like Susan and, and I think, uh, and Mike and Eve, you've, you ended up doing something unrelated to acting. I think you now, uh, do you work is I read a home furnishings brand. 
is a focus of your life now. How would you have guessed coming out of the show in 74 that you also would move away from acting or did you, were you still gung ho to, to keep doing it? I was aiming to get away from acting. Really? Uh, frankly, I, I'm, you know, surprisingly, I'm still in it. No. Yeah. I was, um, I was uh, glass. I'm always been sort of looking at life as glass half full. There were frustrations in the show at uh, the aspect of group, uh, the lack of uh, individual freedom, if you will, to pursue something for yourself. The timing worked out rather well for other interests that I had that I was prevented from pursuing uh, uh, in school. Uh, was always motivated and, and deeply interested in science. And the school that we had uh, only provided uh, instruction, book instruction. So all labs, and again, I was a science-leaning uh, individual, were not classes I could take. So that prevented you from taking biology and physics and chemistry and all these other things that I really wanted to pursue. The show went, uh, if it went off at five years, it would present me with uh, the second half of my 11th grade year. And then I could then take all of those lab classes and even electives and other things because I was also like my dad. I like to build stuff. Uh, and so it, it provided a, a, an opening toward the world that I was dying to get back into. I had changed schools. Uh, we went to a professional school in 10th grade because of our musical career, uh, which would, that musical career led to a lot of frustrations of me, uh, uh, respective of this liberty I was talking about, this individual freedom. And it prevented me from even going to my regular high school for that. 20 weeks, that was always the case in every other school I'd went to. And I always relished going back to my real school. And that year, I didn't have any of that real school. In 11th grade, I was going to have 20 weeks of it, but I really was looking forward to having more of it, if I could, and getting to know all the, the kids that were in my high school, because I hadn't met them yet. So it was, I was looking forward to this new world, this new life, driven in part because I never said I wanted to be an actor. Uh, it's just something that sort of happened to me, uh, grateful for the experience. And, and, and again, also looking at the character uh, and seeing that there was not much that I um, was going to, it was going to get progressively harder um, for the show to maintain its bearing as a family show when the family's not there. I mean, there were overt desires by the show to turn into another show. Uh, you know, with the with the Kelly kids being spun off from it, the idea being that, you know, when these kids are 18 years old, they can't play these same characters anymore. We, we might. I don't know what the show would look like. And that wasn't the strength of the show about about adolescent concerns. I mean, look at the Vietnam War was going on while we were shooting the show. I was a year from being, you know, having to register and none of that was ever dealt in the show. So whenever I interacted with my friends, the discourse wasn't about these family things that we were all dealing with on the Brady Bunch. It was all these, all the social dynamics of the time that our show just was prevented from dealing with, uh, rightfully so in retrospect. But the fact was that I needed nourishment on that front and that was going to come outside of the show. And then I could decide from there where, you know, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And uh, so the timing was good and I and I look forward to it. But I got to tell you, after a time of being away, it's sort of this this the place, the sense of place, the acceptance of that place, a place that you belong uh, was very missed. 
And, you know, you got to create that for yourself. And in retrospect, it's it, it was a, a wonderful gift to have that because I'm not sure everybody has that at any time in their life for any long run like that. And from that sense of place, I have the sense of family with all of my castmates. Um, but the sense of place that where you drive through a gate and you're accepted and that's where you belong, uh, sort of like school at some point, um, is missed. Mm-hmm. That was such a good answer. I totally forgot the question. <laughs> so we leave it, we leave it to we leave it to HGTV to recreate that space and sense of belonging for us. Well, and that's where I want to I want to bring this if we can. Just uh, uh, tell me, you know, there were all these attempts at different reunions over the years, and usually there would be five of you, or six, you know, sometimes I guess six. But it comes back to this house at 11222 Dilling Street in Studio City, the exterior of the house, you know, and yet nothing inside, of course, was where you guys ever did anything. Uh, my understanding, in fact, is that only if I remember from the sh- from the uh, HGTV show, Barry and Susan, I think you guys were the only ones who had ever even paid the pilgrimage, which uh, or been inside, at least, um, well, I you know, hadn't and, been inside. No, you hadn't been inside just no. to visit. Um, so. And yet I'm seeing, I don't know how these things are calculated, but I've seen an article that says this is the most photographed house in America aside from the White House. I, I Again, I don't know how you calculate something like that, but it is obviously a very popular destination. And so I, I, I just want to ask you, when you heard that house was coming up for sale, what were you thinking? And when you then heard from HGTV, um, why was this something that you know, among the many demands on, you know, people that want to speak with you or have you reunite or do things, why was this something that got all of you to enthusiastically participate? And, uh, and Barry, maybe you can start us off. Well, uh, HGTV had a very clear vision of what they wanted to do, and they were very, very committed to doing it. Uh, they Wait, 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 wait. Did you know what their clear vision was before we started maybe. shooting in November? Well, when we went to dinner, it was very clear. I, I went mm. to that same dinner. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, and I... We I, left that dinner with yeah. them saying, well, we don't know what we're going to do for the show, and uh, but we'd hope that maybe you could be involved. I yeah. told them I told them straight up at that dinner, I think you guys are nuts, and this is one <laughs> of the best ideas I've ever heard. And uh, But it wasn't fleshed out, though. And boy, they sure... They sure, uh, they sure nailed it. I, I think that they pursued things with not knowing what to do. That's, this is why I'm so, I, I'm always calling it a path with heart. There was just, there was all this faith in, okay, we got to get the house. We don't know why, but we got to get the house. And then we got to get all the kids. We don't know why, but we got to get them. And by the time we met, which was on my birthday, um, their idea was to reconstruct the house. Um, on the inside, like it looked on the outside, which as a child, I always thought was completely impossible. And always, why did they choose that house? Because it's a one-story house. It couldn't possibly look like this on the inside. And and yes, it was an insane idea. But that that was pretty much, that was where they were going to go with it. And Mike and I both were like, well, you know, 
I hope they don't realize somewhere along the way that this is impossible. Well, but the other thing <laughs> they did was they bought the rights to the entire library for clips of the entire original series. So mm -hmm. that was a real good indicator of how they wanted to then and now it. Uh, and that, that pulls from uh, the experience and the, the experience of our viewers and audiences from all 50 years uh, from then and now. And I think that uh, brings in a kind of a, a sentimentality to the uh, level of the, of, the, of the show, tone of the show. I think an interesting point, though, to be made is that this show was, wasn't developed, it didn't come to, into, into being like many others in that they bought a house. They made an investment before they had any idea what they were going to do and if they could do any of the things that, that, that uh, rattled around their heads with the house. They never saw the inside. And I think they were <laughs> rattled when they saw the inside too, um, because that's a big chore to do what we ended up doing. And that's what's most miraculous about the show is well, maybe just another on the sequence of miraculous things about the show is that they were able, they executed on that. They were able, you could, we could all see, although I was never told directly, this is going to be a show about rebuilding the Brady house. So the inside is the set that we saw. You could guess that that's where they were going because it's HGTV, but how they were going to get there and what our involvement in that was, was never expressed to me. Even driving up that first day in the car and doing the door opening. It's like, um, I wasn't even sure at that point what our involvement in the show was going to be. That explains a lot. That explains a lot of your behavior that morning. <laughs> I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe I was just, I didn't this. get the call, but no one ever really told me what this is about. I was talking to them about it at dinner. <laughs> well, we, well, at dinner, so the dinner that we're talking about is they got together with us in October, uh, September. What was your birthday, Susan? So it's August, uh, yeah, August 26th. August 14th. And to, because they had bought the house, they bought the house two or three weeks earlier. And mm. I don't, I didn't remember hearing it about it on the news, but I did get, start, started to get a whole bunch of texts. Now, I understand, Barry, you got similar texts. Oh, yeah. Maureen, you may have as well. I but those too. texts were about friends saying, you should buy the house. You should buy the house. <laughs> you should buy What house are they talking about? They clearly, I'm finding out what house they're talking about. I'm going, why? Yeah, you know, because that's here. where you grew up. You could buy your house back. I, go, I, I never even knew yet. where the house was. But then we'd find out that later, another week later, that it was Lance Bass buying the house. Of course, that didn't come true. And that it was this... Darth Vader-like corporate entity <laughs> that obviously had had evil intentions on it, uh, and then that turned out to be HGTV. And then I would have my agent say, "Well, you should call HGTV, find out what you know if they're going to involve you." And I go, "Well, look at if they're going to involve us, they'll call us." A week later, she's getting a call from HGTV to have this dinner, and this dinner was about them talking to us about this house and about the Brady. They literally were putting a straw in our ear to suck out our Brady life because they really just bought a house and now they have to learn Brady. They didn't know at that moment that next year was going to be the 50th anniversary. That's drawing they had no, they, We well, let them know that at dinner. I think one thing that they, one thing that they had right, that they knew in, you know, they knew in the back of their, their minds that something that a hundred million Americans understand. And that is that that house 
is as much of a character in that show as any of us. And I mean, think about it. The orange countertop, Mike's den, um, the, the staircase. Every room. Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's an iconic American touchstone. And, but it didn't exist. It wasn't real. But, and yet it's the house of, of millions of childhoods. Right. Yeah. They knew they had something there and they, and they pursued it until, until it was done. I mean, building a house is hard enough. Think about it. They had to schedule all the HGTV hosts with our schedules, six of us, and they had to build a house in record time, mm-hmm. and they had to make a TV show. It was just a yeah. colossal feat. And I, they, so between they, the time, so between the time that they had that dinner where they had just bought the house, and literally that day or the day before, saw the inside for the very first time. We weren't hired at that point. We'd be hired then. Well, let, let's say the negotiations went well past the start date, um, <laughs> but they <laughs> uh, they weren't culminated until late. In I mean, much later, before they initiated those negotiations, had to find out whether or not they could do it, because the whole show has to be a success at the end. It's not a it's not a tragedy. So they have to know they can execute on it. And, and that's what took that extra month before we were in negotiations is the builders sitting down and figuring out with plans and dimensions if you could do it. But it seemed like, Maureen, and I mean, I know you guys are, are all very talented actors, but it did seem like you guys were genuinely having fun doing this stuff. I mean, you got you some of you have experience with you're doing, you know, construction or painting or things like that. But it seemed like um this was it was it as fun as it looked it was so much fun um so honestly when i heard the house was for sale i was like (laughs) i don't want anyone else to get it i want it i mean it just it will always be very special to me well obviously when i saw you know the price is going crazy i'm like okay i'm not even going to go there you know bidding wars no stay away um and then I heard, you know, HGTV got it. Um, And the reason why I was so on board, not only was everyone coming back, everyone, which was so exciting to me, but HGTV, I mean, if anyone is gonna redo this house, I felt like they would do it right. I think they're a classy, awesome, amazing network. I'm a huge fan. I love home renovations. I have been doing that for years. Home has always been so important to me and my family. My mom and dad were in real estate and um, I I love all of that design and, and changing things. So it was so much fun, I can't even tell you. And the most amazing thing, other than all of us coming back together again, which it had been a really, really long time since we had all been back together, which was the best. Um, and the crew was the best. Everyone put their heart and soul into this project. But the craziest part of the whole thing was when I walked in that door after it was done, I felt, and every time I still go back, I feel like I am on stage five 
at the mm-hmm. lot and I get goosebumps. I feel Bob. I feel see Bob and Florence. I mean, it like real and happened. Perfect. Eve, it must have been a pretty mind blowing thing to be able to go back in the girl's bedroom or do, you know, just like, like, like Maureen's saying, just to basically go back in time in a sense, right? Yes and no, because the thing is that it was such a meticulous recreation of, of the set um, without having had any blueprints, um, just by looking at it to be able to figure out the perspective and the scale, uh, to create things out of whole cloth, to have wallpaper printed and fabric printed so that it matched, to have people across the country donate things um, it, and have it turn into this uh, amazing recreation, 3D recreation of the show. Yes, you do. It was very relaxing because it was very familiar to be there. Um, and it is an astonishing work of art. Absolutely. Well, I wonder if we can we can leave this with just a, um, a kind of amusing uh, last last thing where uh, if we can go around the horn, I'm, I'd just be curious to know. Because as you know, fans know every episode by like the back of their hand. They know your your lines. They know trivia. Uh, they now know the house if they didn't before. Every inch of it. So when you are approached by fans, what is the line of your character that you are most often asked about? And then we'll we'll uh, close it out with that. So I wonder, we'll I guess start with Barry and and just wind down this way if we can. Uh, hey there, groovy chick. And I don't think I ever said it. Uh, Maureen. Well, it's two for me. Oh, my nose and Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And I have to say, I think my brother, Denny, who has special needs, started the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha because we were in a grocery store years ago in the Valley when the show was just starting. And he said that like out loud. And I was like, oh, Denny, no, 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 no. And it was, it was just so cute. But, um, yeah, I would say those those two. Nice, uh, Mike. Bobby had a lot of one word lines, you know, that they they figured it was wise to just have Bobby say "neato," or. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as far as uh, as far as as far as fans go, um, it's a lot. It's usually the salacious stuff about Mike and Susan in the doghouse, you know, smooching. That that would probably be the one. <laughs> Which Bobby and Cindy didn't do. Uh, Eve, what's the one? Yeah, it was the one that that Maureen talked about, which actually came from, uh, was popularized actually by the person who uh, satirized me on Saturday Night Live. That's how that became popular. But everyone that comes up to us is just great. (laughs) And just to be clear, of the Maureen ones, we're talking about the Marsha, Marsha, Marsha line, right? Yes. (laughs) Uh, And Christopher, how about you? Pork chops and applesauce <laughs> with amazing consistency and continuity. Uh, and who knows why these things happen. I had one th- line that was repeated uh, 10, 12 times uh, that kept getting longer. It was just wow, but I did a 10 second wow, right? So <laughs> you would think that something that's repeated like that would be because of the repetition, the thing that people remember. And and it doesn't work that way. And how it is that it's pork chops and applesauce. And I know for a fact, it's not because somebody else made uh, a point of it. And that 
then through social media or some social interaction became a meme that way. It's literally <laughs> different continents people picked up on it. And I, I, you know, no, no. So uh, I literally have a pork chop phenomenon. <laughs> I can't go to a restaurant that serves a pork chop without them suggesting that I order it. <laughs> hey, Michael, don't you also get a lot of uh, mom always says? Oh, right. Mom always says don't play ball in the house, which is one that I, <laughs> that I bring up because it's, you know, such words of wisdom. And, uh, right. <laughs> but I got to tell you a quick story. I had a family, um, they got my phone number probably, you know, from my website, but, uh, and, um, they, they were having a birthday party for their grown up sister and they, and they got a hold of me and they said, okay, at, at 8 PM, here's what we'd like you to do. We want you to call my sister and just say, Whatever, whatever goes on in the conversation, we'll have you on speakerphone. At some point, I want you to say, sounds great, Greg, because this family, this family, that's one of their, like, phrases that they use to this day when they talk to each other, the brothers and sisters. They, somebody will say something, and they'll say, sounds great, Greg. So when I finally said, sounds great, Greg, over the phone, I thought they were dying on the other end. They were, like, they were freaking out, screaming and laughter and rolling on the floor. So there's there's always little little fun little touchstones like that 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 people in America you know still they're still Bradyified you know you know <laughs> totally. it's just and, the happiness that it seems to have brought to so many I mean people come up to me and they say a line and it makes them happy and I've heard it a million times but to see them saying it and they're just pure like enthusiasm in in saying it makes me happy because they're happy it brings them happiness that's great and susan i'll uh I, I, you're you're the you're the closer here <laughs> she sells seashells by the seashore you know that's probably the line although i think the line cindy said the most was what does that mean because cindy was forever kind of clueless about everything <laughs> Uh, but I don't really have a line that people come up to me and, and say. They they usually just go, where are your pigtails? And I'm like, I'm 59. Why would I wear pigtails? And they say, well, you'd be more recognizable. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be oh, a little man. odd. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, for so many happy memories with the show. And then for, for this one, certainly joins them. I, I know it's probably grating to answer the question, a question for the millionth time, but I appreciate what, you know, how nice you've been about it. And, um, and yeah, thank you again. Really appreciate and it. And our thanks thank to you, HGTV for bringing us all together for today and doing this. This is, this is how this all happened and yes. why we've been able to, uh, you know, regenerate our, our friendships and chemistry, et cetera. So thanks Scott. Awesome. Well, take care guys. Alrighty. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.